0: chango
1: gentlemen, welcome to Roma number 65. More or less, I don't know, sometimes I forget to put a number on them. They just slip through. And the bromas, I'm not going to number bromas. Broma, by the way, is, it's not a bro Roma. It's a bonus Roma. I'm not a bro, I guess. I think I was, I was an honorary bro there for a while when I was hanging out with Rogan and Aubrey Marcus and sort of the, uh, you know, the bro aristocracy there. I think I was uh, accepted as a bro, an elder bro, a bro elder. Um, But I think at this point I'm no longer in the pantheon of bros. Anya and I were talking about this last night. Uh, We're talking about how psychedelics have become part of bro culture and uh yeah i think rogan and and aubrey had a lot to do with that or maybe they just sort of flowed down the the current that was already in action but um it's an interesting thing right because Psychedelics used to be the province of deadheads and uh, hippies and, you know, tie-dye shirts and long hair and white dudes with dreadlocks and didgeridoos. And uh, now it seems that it's been taken over by guys who spend a lot of time, you know, working on their human optimization, uh, biohacking perfect musculature and, uh, you know, rolling around jujitsu and uh, making lots of money and, you know, whatever. It It's a strange thing because it used to be kind of the opposite of that. It used to be that psychedelics, as Timothy Leary said, uh, you know, turn on, meaning take the drugs, tune in, you know, hear the message, and drop out because the message was telling you to drop out. The message was not saying move to Austin and make a lot of money. It was not saying, you know, get your ass on Tim Ferriss' podcast and uh, sell a a million books or or tickets to your human optimization, whatever, uh, get together. It was saying... Get some land and some friends and, you know, move to the country with your goats and grow some fucking rutabagas and uh, sit around the fire and get high and make love and listen to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. So somehow that turned into something much more American and much more commodified. I don't really know how it happened. And I think for a while there, maybe maybe the reason I was an honorary uh, bro elder is that I think uh, non-monogamy was sort of sucked into that same ecosystem uh, where, you know, the cool thing was to free your mind uh, with the psychedelics. So you're... Smoking DMT, and you're doing your cold plunge, and you're, you know, uh, you're, you know, you're pushing your your body and your spirit to its uh, its maximum capacity, and um, and I guess you could sort of hack your love life as well in uh, in a non monogamous sort of way, and. I I never really saw non-monogamy in those terms, obviously, but I think that explains um, why I was sort of adopted into that world there for a while. Yeah. Anyway, welcome to uh, Aroma. This that's the beauty of these things. I had no idea I was going to talk about any of that when I hit record. <laughs> I actually have some notes here uh, of things that I did want to talk about, and uh, none of that appears in the notes. I I wanted, the one thing I wanted to talk about was um, the Unabomber died a week or two ago, a couple weeks ago now. And it's a shame he's known as the Unabomber, um, because there was so much more going on with Ted, uh, what's his last name, Kaczynski, I think. The guy was a genius. I think he he was accepted at Harvard at sixteen. Um, he had important discoveries in I don't know if he was studying chemistry or physics or mathematics or some some like super brainy area. And um, and there's some evidence that he was involved in the um, I think it was the MK Ultra government research around using um, psychedelics for mind control interrogation purposes that sort of thing. I don't remember the details but uh, I'm sure a bunch of people listening to this are saying yeah um, and, and if you're interested just google it the the information is available online but um, yeah I think th- there was something about because he was the age where I think you know he could have gone to Vietnam. Uh, but I think that when he was at Harvard, maybe there was some some um, some dilly dallying around with uh, the CIA. Anyway, uh, the only reason he got caught, well, let's let's back it up. The reason that he was sending these bombs was not that he thought that killing some computer scientists. Um, in some laboratory in Berkeley or or whatever, was going to stop the degradation of the natural world, which was his big issue. It's that he wanted to leverage this terror campaign um, into forcing the media to publish his manifesto, which he did, by the way, uh he said, I'll stop sending these bombs if you guys publish this writing that I've done about how we're destroying the natural world. And he caused enough damage and fear and disruption um, that he got what he wanted and they did publish it. And then what happened is his brother who hadn't spoken to him for years since he went off and lived in the woods in Montana somewhere, read this manifesto and recognized the writing and thinking style and said, I think that's my brother. Holy shit. That's how he got busted. Um, So he was destroyed by his own success. Anyway, I've been thinking about him recently because... I just bought, Anya and I just bought a, a property here in Crestone. Um, very, very inexpensive because it's not connected to any utilities and it's got a big uh, arroyo running through it. It's, it's kind of uh, no man's land just on the fringes of town here, but it's up on a hill. It's got a beautiful view. And it was owned by a guy who John Racky was his name. Um, he built this cabin there. And he was a lot, he was kind of a unibomber type of guy. He bought this property super cheap uh, with his sister, Rosemary. Uh, his sister gave him the money for it. And he built a cabin on it. He trucked in his own water. He had some rain catchment systems. He had a wood stove in this cabin. It's up on stilts. Um, it's a very simple cabin, probably maybe 25 by 25 uh, feet. Um, and he had all this canned food in there and very sort of like survival. He also had tons of stereo equipment, big speakers, Um. Uh, big TV and, uh, VHS tapes, really good films, great taste in, in, uh, films. I didn't find any of the music. Anyway, he died four years ago and I've been in touch with his sister. I was helping her. She, she lives in uh, Chicago somewhere and she's in her eighties, I think. And, and, um, Anyway, long story, but uh, I was helping her clean out the cabin and, and truck away some of the stuff, the trucks and the, the solar panels and the stuff that he had there. And uh, and then she just said, do you want to buy this? You know, I want to sell it. I don't, and, and she gave me a, a very reasonable price. I I have no idea how much the land is worth. She didn't want to talk to real estate people, and I was fine with that. So anyway, got this land. And I've been in there cleaning out the cabin going through his stuff and the guy was prepared for the end of the world but he wasn't prepared for the end of himself i think i might have mentioned this briefly on an earlier podcast i there was a a flashlight it really struck me with the flashlight uh And it was very dim. The batteries were almost dead. And I changed the batteries. And as I was changing the batteries, I imagined the last time the batteries were changed in that flashlight. You know, I'm sure it was John. And I'm sure it, well, I don't know. I could be wrong. But I doubt it occurred to him that this is the last time I'm going to change the batteries in this flashlight. I'll be gone before these batteries need to be changed again. It's just so strange how our things outlive us. I mean, this t-shirt I'm wearing right now might still be around when I'm gone. So strange. Maybe that's just me, but it, it reminded me of when I was young, early 20s, Uh, I was very passionate uh, about environmentalism and the destruction of the natural world, like the Unabomber, like John. Uh, I read Edward Abbey around that time. Desert Solitaire, fantastic book. Highly recommended to everybody out there. Um, essays on the desert and some of the people he met when he lived in Moab in the 70s. But he also wrote a book called The Monkey Wrench Gang, a novel. I don't think Edward Abbey was a very good novelist, um, but that novel became very popular because it was about characters who he knew uh, based on real people, a couple of which are still alive, and I, I might even be able to do a podcast with one of them when I'm in Montana this summer. Been emailing back and forth about that. Anyway, these people uh, allegedly were eco terrorists, meaning that they destroyed equipment that was used to destroy the environment. So they would uh, go out and pour sugar into the gas tanks of bulldozers that were cutting roads into the wilderness, or they would drive spikes into trees that were slated to be uh, cut. And that might sound counterproductive, but what they were doing was they would drive these long nails into the trees, and the nails wouldn't kill the tree they i don't even know if they hurt the trees but they would drive these nails in and you couldn't see them because they'd hammer them in past the bark but then they would put signs up saying trees in this grove have been spiked and that would discourage the timber guys what are they called lumberjacks are they still called lumberjacks uh from cutting these trees down because they'd fuck up their blades if not the chainsaws that they were using to cut the trees, they would certainly fuck up the blades back at the mill when they were milling the, the trunks into uh, planks. And each one of those blades is uh, very expensive, so it, they were the idea was to make it economically unfeasible to cut down the forest. Um, anyway, there was an organization around that time called Earth First, their motto was "No compromise in defense of Mother Earth." And um, yeah, there's a there's a fantastic novel called "The Overstory." Um, if you're looking for something to read, that it, oh, it's such a good book. It it's sort of written from the point of view of trees. Um, it came out maybe five years ago. It's a fantastic novel, but. Um some of the characters in that novel uh engage in this kind of thing where they they um, destroy things in order to try to save things. And I was I was so close to getting involved in this kind of thing um, because I was full of that passion, you know, that I've got to do something. I gotta do something. I gotta join a cause that's bigger than me. And um I don't know. I I, I I don't want to incriminate myself. Uh I plead the uh the Fifth Amendment. Um but I um I did engage in a little uh creative destruction. And there was something about it that felt, it just felt false to me. It felt like um, I'm doing this in order to feel righteous, but I can't honestly say that what I'm doing is going to have the effect that I want it to have. Yeah, it's it's strange. Um, and I don't know where I stand on that now. I don't know if I'm just, you know, a 61-year-old guy shaking my head at the crazy young man that I was. Um, because what what would have happened? How would things have been different? I mean, my life may have been different. I may have been in prison because... When they caught these guys, I mean, they passed some laws, um, eco terrorism laws, and they they declared Earth First a a terrorist organization, even though they they never killed anyone. They weren't, and and they were very strict about not hurting any living things. The idea was to destroy property. But man, you destroy a $100,000 bulldozer, From some logging company, you go to prison for longer than if you shoot somebody on a street corner in South Central. Because the brutal fact of the matter is that a bulldozer is worth more than most human lives in this country. So I may well have spent the rest of my days in prison if I had gone down that path. Anyway, I've been thinking about that and thinking about the necessity, the the urgent need that we feel to do something sometimes, and yet the futility of trying to change the trajectory of history. I'm reminded of a story I heard years ago, I don't even remember where or how, but it was comparing this the sort of narcissism and, and ego of thinking that we are going to change history, right? If I just assassinate the right politician or I get sugar into the gas tank of the right bulldozer or, you know, I join whatever cause and march in the street that I'm going to change history, I don't feel... I have come to the conclusion in my own studies that that's like somebody floating down a river thinking they're going to change the course of the river or the story that I would, I mentioned was, uh, was you know, some m- mythological story about uh, fleas on the back of an elephant arguing over which direction they should go. Right. As if the fleas could control the, where the elephant goes. Should we go toward the river or should we go to the mountains? No, we should do this. And all of these long discussions between the fleas, but the elephant's going to go where the elephant wants to go. It has nothing to do with the fleas on his back. And I think we're fleas on the back of history. I don't think... I have no illusions that I would have changed the course of history if I had joined Earth first. Or if I wrote another book or, you know... the I don't think really, I think we amuse ourselves as best we can, and we find refuge where we can find it um, as things happen, as they're going to happen, because on some levels, we're passive observers of history. We are not controllers of history. I'm going to read you a a poem right now that someone sent me, or maybe I think, I think they mentioned it, um, on the open thread, by the way, this month's open thread on Substack is open to everybody. Normally it's a a bonus thing for paying subscribers only, but this month I made it open for everybody. So if you go to chrisryan.substack.com, you'll see the open thread, um, and, and it's pretty, uh, you can talk about whatever you want and it's just a way to interact with the the community, the tangentialista community. Um, but I, I often just ask a question to sort of get the conversation going. And this month, the question was, what's the last piece of art that actually brought you to tears? And so people are, are uh, recommending uh, books and movies and, and poetry and, and, uh, yeah, music. It's it's really interesting to see the sorts of things that that touch people. Anyway, somebody uh, mentioned this poem, and I thought I would read it to you because it's uh, very relevant to what I've been talking about. It's by a woman named Ada Limon. Uh, I guess she's poet laureate of the United States at the moment. Um, anyway, the film is or the, the poem is called "The Conditional." Say tomorrow doesn't come. Say the moon becomes an icy pit. Say the sweet gum tree is petrified. Say the sun's a foul black tire fire. Say the owl's eyes are pinpricks. Say the raccoon's a hot tar stain. Say the shirt's plastic ditch litter. Say the kitchen's a cow's corpse. Say we never get to see it. Bright future, stuck like a bum star. Never coming close, never dazzling. Say we never meet her, never him. Say we spend our last moments staring at each other, hands knotted together, clutching the dog, watching the sky burn say it doesn't matter say that would be enough say you'd still want this us alive right here feeling lucky the conditional it's caught why is it called the conditional It's the conditional case, grammatically speaking, right? She's saying, in the case of everything going to shit, in the case of apocalypse coming soon to a theater near you, uh, if that's what's about to happen... Would you still want this moment before? If the shit's going to hit the fan, do you still want to be alive here and now? Just before it happens? Do you still want this? Us alive, right here, feeling lucky. Is it better to have been born in order to see the destruction of everything that you love... Or is it better never to have been born at all? I think that's the question she's asking. If this is the condition, if this is the deal you're offered, which more and more people seem to be coming around to understanding is the deal we're offered, would you still take it? I'm speaking to you on July 5th. Apparently, from what I read this morning, yesterday, July 4th, was... The hottest day in the history of the recorded history, anyway, of the planet. And I guess they, you know, recorded global temperatures and averaged them together and come up with a number for the whole planet. And yesterday was the hottest, and it's going to be hotter still. I saw some graphs of ocean surface temperatures that are terrifying that the surface temperature of, I think it is the North Atlantic, but forgive me if I get it wrong, is like five or six degrees higher than anything ever recorded. That's what it looks like when the shit hits the fan. That's the first shit hitting the fan. The major turds are coming soon. So what are we going to do about this? I think the question that Ada Limon is asking in this poem is really important. And and maybe it's the first question we need to answer before we move on to the next questions. Because the question is, do you accept the deal? If you don't accept the deal, then you're looking at self-destruction, right? You're saying, I reject this Life, I've been offered. I reject these conditions. So that's when you go into severe alcoholism or some other kind of self destructive chemical dependency or doing really high risk things that are sort of designed uh, to hasten your demise. Or maybe you join one of these uh, extremist organizations and go out and blow shit up. But in any case, you don't say, yeah, I'm going to try to live a, a meaningful, loving life under these conditions. Now, personally, I flirted with that decision in my early adulthood and came down on the side of no life is still so fucking beautiful what fragment or fragmentary slivers of nature is still around is still so inspiring and so lovely and the night sky is still full of stars and rivers still flow and it's still possible to travel and see people and connect with other human beings in a way that transcends culture and language and age and history and, and, and all these things. And, uh, life is still very much worth living. That was the decision that I came to, but other people are coming to other decisions and, and also the, situation that i confronted at that point was less severe far less severe uh, to be honest than the situation that young people are confronting right now and so i have deep compassion for young people who are coming to consciousness and looking around them and and seeing that everything's on the verge of collapse. Everything. It's either in the process of collapsing or threatening to. I made a list. Uh, I'm keeping a list, just thinking about it. Uh, Things in the process of collapsing. Here, I'll read you what I have so far. The Amazon ecosystem, ocean ecosystems, ice caps and glaciers, American democracy, Pollinating insect populations, global food supplies, social security, the American dream, uh, scientific replication, aquifers, rivers, Earth's orbit is being affected by groundwater pumping, Uh, respect for American political institutions, including the Supreme Court, most recently, trustworthy journalism, uh, driven by a search for the truth rather than clicks or eyeballs or whatever the fuck it is respect for medicine doctors are dropping out they're disgusted with the profession in the united states and and fewer and fewer are interested in medical school Uh, that's just a partial list i mean that that's a list that's going to go on and on and that's what young people are looking at and saying holy fuck are you kidding me this is the deal you're offering me these are the conditions you want me to accept so I understand why rates of anxiety, depression, suicide are higher than they've ever been among young Americans. I feel incredible compassion. And of course, these are just the the things that we're consciously aware of, right? That list I just made is, I just read to you is... Um, you know, things we can point our fingers at, but there are also a lot of things that that go under the radar that, that you don't necessarily um, even know are happening to you. I was thinking about this recently. I, I flew to Atlanta um, to hang out with Rick Beato for an afternoon. And, you know, I've been in Crestone for months now, and, uh, you know, once uh, every week or two, I'll drive up to Salida or down to Alamosa, which are the two closest mm, towns of any size, and they're an hour away. You know, drive up there to the supermarket or whatever. But the rest of the time, I'm in this tiny-ass little town, uh, no, no street lights and, you know, no traffic and and. Uh, no, just very little um, sort of interaction with the greater world. So, man, I go to Denver and fly, I'm in airports and all this, and it's striking how this sort of constant hum of humiliation that you're subjected to if you live in the world. It's like, fucking airports get in this line, go over there, take your shoes off, remove this, I told you that, oh, don't do this, yeah, can't you tell, Yeah, get rid of your water bottle, oh, no, this is, it has to be in a plastic bag, what's wrong with you, it's like you're in fucking middle school, you're just constantly being herded around and treated like shit and there's nothing you can do about it of course because the people who are treating you this way are themselves humiliated these fucking TSA agents they're not making any money they've got all they get is a, is the thrill of pissing on everybody who walks by right so it's not their fault it's structural and then you're on the fucking airplane and there's no, the seat super uncomfortable and the se- it doesn't recline because now they make seats that don't recline because they don't want you to be comfortable and they don't want them, they, they make them as tight as they possibly can. And, you know, you want a fucking bottle of water, you got to pay five bucks for it. You want your carry-on bag is an inch bigger than it says it can be, and people are yo. You gotta pay fifty bucks for this, and blah, 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 all these extra charges, all this hidden stuff, the sneaky bullshit that they're doing. Man, it's just constant. But you don't even notice it, right? Because it's just normal. That's what it means to fly these days. Or you, watch, I don't, I don't fucking watch television. But I remember going and and watching, hanging out with my dad, and he'd have the TV on, and the ads are just so humiliating. But he didn't notice because he was used to it. But I would sit there and be like so angry, like who invited these assholes into the living room to talk to us like we're fucking idiots. But that's normal life. So, of course, people are rebelling against this shit or they're, they're sinking under the weight of it. Because you live in a culture that tells you you're a product, you're stupid, you're not enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough, you're not rich enough, your abs aren't tight enough, you're not, you're not an optimized human fuck this human optimization bullshit we're organic beings we're soft flesh is soft Uh, i get really frustrated by all these hard bodies i i i I feel so sad for these billionaires who are spending all this money because they think they're going to live forever And they think if they just take the right supplements and they just do the right stretches and they fucking infuse themselves with hormones and chemicals and they control their dopamine levels, they'll acquire, they'll they'll attain human perfection and they'll be ultimately happy and healthy and live forever. You fucking idiots. Jesus Christ. You're wasting your life chasing immortality. All right, all of this brings me around to what I was intending to talk about this whole time, which is uh, that we don't get to choose the conditions in which we live, by and large. We don't get to choose the historical moment in which we live. We don't get to choose the family we were born into or the country we were born into. We don't get to choose whether or not our mother breastfed us or had a cesarean section. There are so many things we don't get to choose about the context in which we live our lives. But we do get to choose how we respond To these conditions. So I feel like a lot of people I talk to are um, missing the opportunity to shape their responses to life because they're focused on the aspects of life that they can't change. They're angry at the context in which they live. They're angry at the family in which they were raised. They're angry at the culture that they live in. And, and I get it. I Believe me, I was a very angry young man for quite a while. But I think what I want to try to say today is that There's a very important transition that needs to happen where you move from being focused on the anger and disappointment or, or sense of being cheated in some way to ex- just accept that, right? It's not a sign of weakness to accept the reality that you can't change. That's not a sign of weakness. That's just, that's just fucking reality. And you can't start shaping your life until you accept that reality. Until you accept, you know, you're not as attractive as you wish you were. You're not as strong as you wish you were. You're not as just Whatever you can't start making things better for yourself until you accept the reality as it is right now, whether it's about you personally or about the greater world. And I feel like we waste our time fighting against these conditions that can't be changed. You know, you're, you're five, seven, and you wish you were six, two. Well, well, how many years are you gonna spend being upset about that? You're not gonna get taller. you're gonna you're gonna wear fucking lifts in your shoes. you're gonna like you know have femur extension surgery like really? Let's just accept things as they are and go from there. You know, I hear people say things like, Oh, you know, I couldn't help it. I was angry. Like that, that's a child. If you say, I couldn't help doing or saying this stupid shit because I was angry or I was scared or I was in love or whatever condition you think excuses that behavior, you're a child. And I'm not saying, you shouldn't feel angry. I'm not saying you shouldn't feel in love. I'm not saying you shouldn't feel frightened. I'm saying how you respond to those feelings is your responsibility. So if you have a tendency to say stupid shit when you're angry, then at a certain point in your life, you need to understand that, okay, I'm going to take three deep breaths when I'm angry before I fucking say anything. It doesn't mean I'm not going to feel angry. I and I think we we make this mistake very often as we say the feeling is inappropriate. I'm going to stop having that feeling. No, you're not. But you can control your response to the feeling. Right? That's the key to understanding addiction. That's the key to understanding how to how to fucking live your life you're not going to change the feeling that's why i always said you know the thing about non-monogamy it's like just because you've decided to be monogamous doesn't mean bacon or decided to be vegetarian doesn't mean bacon stops smelling good right so i'm not saying you know what i'm trying to say to people is you will be better at monogamy if you understand that it's going to be hard if you understand that you're going to have feelings that contradict the way you're choosing to behave, those feelings aren't bad. You, You shouldn't waste your energy trying to get rid of those feelings. You should acknowledge those feelings. Because by acknowledging them, you acknowledge that you have the power to respond to them as you choose. Whereas if you just say, oh, I couldn't help it, I was angry, I couldn't help it, I was drunk, I couldn't help it, I was horny, I couldn't... No, that's not responsible adult behavior. The mind is not us, right? So the mind goes where it goes sometimes, um, but the mind is not you. Your mind is like a puppy, running around in your house and sometimes it jumps up on the sofa and you need to say, get off the fucking sofa, puppy. It's not you. You are observing your mind. That's why we have phrases like, oh, my mind's playing tricks on me. Well, okay. If your mind is playing tricks on you, then clearly you are not your mind, right? So again, emotions, the mind, these things happen and we observe them. And we choose how to respond to them. And I think it's a big mistake to waste your life trying to filter out the feelings, trying to say, my mind will never go there. I'll never, I'll never be paranoid. I'll never wake up in the middle of the night terrified. I'll never, no, that's going to happen. That's always going to happen. I'll never be attracted to anyone other than my partner. Ah, bullshit. I'll never feel old and fat and sad and depressed. Bullshit. You're going to feel all those things. You're going to feel everything. Don't waste your time trying to filter those feelings. Spend your time and your energy cultivating your sense of control over how you respond to them. You're never going to control the puppy, but you can control how you respond to the puppy. All right, that's enough ranting and raving for me today. Happy Independence Day, everybody. I think the whole point of this, Roma, was to declare our independence from the context, the, the the conditions into which we were born, in which we find ourselves now, it can get overwhelming when you look at the fact that we are apparently on a sinking ship. But we can choose to live the way we want to live on this ship, even if it's sinking, and we don't know. It might go down tomorrow, it might go down 100 years from now, and we'll all be dead anyway. So what a waste it would have been to freak out and panic and jump off the ship if it turns out that it's sinking so slowly that we would have died of old age before it went under. Anyway, that's the good side, (laughs) I guess. That's the optimistic vision of what's happening. Uh, But the point is that we are, we have a certain degree of control, a certain degree of independence, we can, you know, as Carsey Blanton says, we can dance while the smoke alarms are going off, right? Okay, Uh, I'm going to play you out with a song that was sent to me by a woman named Jenna. No, Gemma, M's, Gemma. Uh, Gemma and the Good Thing is the name of the band. And the song is called Skim Milk, It's the first single from her debut album, Get It Together. And here's the little black uh, background blurb that she sent me. She said, it was a regular Wednesday and I was thinking about things nobody would buy if the world were ending imminently. (laughs) So you can see there's a theme running through this episode, this Roma. The first thing that popped into my head was skim milk. Truly disgusting stuff. So then skim milk sort of became this beacon of hope in a song about coming of age in a time of increasing climate anxiety. If people are still buying skim milk, it can't be over just yet, right? (laughs) So, all right. So people are still buying skim milk. That means there's still hope because skim milk sucks and they wouldn't be buying skim milk, right? If the world were ending next week, nobody would be worried about their fucking dairy fat content. You'd go straight to the fucking whole cream. We'd be chugging whipping cream. (laughs) Yeah. We would not be trying to uh, total human optimize our bodies uh, if, you know, we're all going to be incinerated in fucking nuclear disaster. You know, an hour before I started recording this, I was reading about how apparently the Russians have planted fucking bombs in the zaporizhzhia nuclear plant and they're threatening to blow up a nuclear plant intentionally, welcome to to now. And the story just next to that was about how the Fukushima plant that got flooded whenever that was seven eight years ago whenever is now going to release all that radioactive water that they've been using to cool the plant into the pacific ocean of course they are we knew i knew the day after it happened that all that shit was going to end up in the ocean but they've been putting it on building all these tanks and you know accumulating all this water while they go through the legal process of course, it's going to end up in the ocean. What are they going to do? Shoot it into the sky? No. So, welcome to July 5th, 2023. The fucking Russians are going to blow up a nuclear plant in Ukraine, and the Japanese are releasing their contaminated radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. And yesterday was the hottest day in the history of recorded temperatures on planet Earth. Holy shit but, you know, get some of that skim milk. All right, this is Gemma and the Good Thing, singing skim milk because the world is not ending tomorrow, apparently. Thanks for listening. I love you all. I hope you love each other. And, uh, man, yeah, find somebody to love because that is... The only meaningful act of rebellion available, I think. Love and humor. And, you know, drink some fucking whole milk if you're going to drink milk. Yeah. Bye.